This episode of Recommended is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who we're talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or even while you're just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of Recommended can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. That's two months free. Go to Libro FM, that's Libro.fm, and enter code BR3 at checkout. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Again, that's Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the code BR3, the number three, at checkout to get three months for the price of one. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring this episode of Recommended. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. Today, authors Susan Choi and Peter Mendelssohn each talk about a classic that influenced their own work. Susan Choi is a recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation. Her first novel, The Foreign Student, won the Asian American Literary Award for Fiction, and her second novel, American Woman, was a finalist for the 2004 Pulitzer Prize. Her new novel, Trust Exercise, takes place at a highly competitive performing arts high school and examines what happens when a first love between high school students is interrupted by the attentions of a charismatic teacher. It will be released on April 9th of 2019. My name is Susan Choi, and The Prime of Miss Jean Brody by Muriel Spark is my recommended. I first encountered this book as a thing floating around culturally that I had heard of and had formed weird associations with before I ever understood it was a book. It's really strange, but because it was a movie and because of the title, which is, I think, starchy or fussy or prissy sounding, if you don't know what the book is about or don't sort of understand that Muriel Spark is incredibly sort of acidic and misanthropic. Um, I had these associations with that title of, I don't know, like that moment in The Sound of Music when Julie Andrews spins around. You know that really corny moment where she spins around while she's singing and there's like a tracking shot from overhead. And I always used to cringe when I saw that when I was a kid because she seemed so sincere um, in a way that even then as a cynical child, I found uncomfortable. And that title, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, somehow evoked the same image for me of sincerity, some like middle-aged lady who's like feeling really excited about something. So I wasn't attracted and I didn't end up reading it until I encountered other books of Muriel Sparks and just fell so hard for her. I was so enthralled by how unconcerned she is for, I guess, issues of likability. Like she seemed as an author, not to care if you liked her, if you liked her characters, if you liked her story, there was something very regal and bitchy and just hilarious about her tone. And so 
when I went to look for the prime of Miss Jean Brody, having realized that it had to be different from what I thought, I did have expectations and my expectations were subverted even again because it's such a flawless send up in certain ways of like the school novel, the novel of students and teachers, of, you know, the hothouse environment of a girl's school specifically. But it's also a really compassionate and sad book. I think, you know, Miss Jean Brody ultimately is, she's a moving figure to me. She's a fascist. I mean, the book is so strange. She's this charismatic teacher who is given to just outlandish utterances. And it seems as if we should either laugh at her or mock her or deplore her, maybe all of those things. But in the end, in the end, I found her really moving. And so I think that that's what really surprised me about this book is that it's not, you know, it's not a caricature in any way at all. I don't understand where it comes from, but it feels to me, even when I'm teaching my students or reading on my own, that we, and when I say we, I guess I mean American readers, we spend a lot of time wondering if we like somebody or if we don't like them, we wonder if we're supposed to, or if they're not likable, but we do like them, we wonder if there's something wrong with us. Like this whole this whole question of like whether we're supposed to sympathize or condemn seems like really preoccupying to us. And it's surprising when you look at somebody like Muriel Spark, who's presenting, you know, this just panoply of human bad behavior and almost seems to be saying like, why are you so worried about whether you should like or dislike these people? Read, be entertained, <laughs> be appalled, you know, be surprised, give a dark chuckle. Maybe you should stop agonizing so much about whether you like them. That's my imagination of her of her voice in my ear as I read her. My thought was always that, that that's what literature is for in large part. <laughs> you know, I say this to my students all the time, so I almost feel like I'm spouting a cliche, but like we don't, you know, none of us want to hang out with Ahab and like you don't want to go sailing with Ahab. You like don't want to spend the summer with him, but it's amazing to read about him, right? I mean, he's a, he's a crazy, obsessive, murderous, monomaniacal lunatic. And that's what literature can give you as the experience of spending time with somebody like that. I think that we do really hunger to read about people who are operating like off the moral map, possibly people who are not as concerned maybe with what they do, how they act, how they're received than we might be. I mean, that's a, you know, again, like I think one of the things that I love about literature is, you know, lets you it lets you have vicarious experiences that you either can't have in your life or you don't want to have or you fear having them, but you know, you can you can stray into these strange, frightening or unfamiliar psychological realms through a character. And so if every character was, you know, super nice and behave the way you want your best friend to behave. Like, how interesting is that? I mean, that's, it, it wears thin after a while, you know? I recommend it all the time because it's a book that, although I've read it now multiple times, I have never read it without laughing at some point. Even thinking about it now, <laughs> I, could, I could start laughing at certain moments of it that I think are just so funny. Often the way, the way Miss Brody talks to her students, she's so in the most severely serious way, she's so flamboyant. There are so few characters in literature that are just singular, where you can't compare them to any other character or person. And Jean Brody is one of those really singular characters. Also, there's like a crazy, overheated, female pubescence 
depicted in this book that the only other thing that I've ever encountered that captured it in a similar way was um, Peter Jackson's movie Heavenly Creatures with Kate Winslet, which is such an astounding rendition of adolescent female-ness. And that, you know, that movie and this book are weirdly linked in my mind because they have this similar quality of being these sort of just extraordinary renderings of what the youthful female psyche looks like, feels like. So I'm thinking of those passages in Muriel Sparks' book where the, the two girls are, they're fantasizing about this character from Robert Louis Stevenson, I think. Because Spark loved Stevenson, which is another thing I love about her, is that she loved RLS, like alludes to him in her writing all the time. And so there's this whole sequence in the book where two of the schoolgirls are like essentially writing fan fiction about the works of Robert Louis Stevenson, but they're like living in this imaginary world in which one of his heroes is like, you know, rescuing them from like the craggy peaks of mountains and, you know, ripping his shirt off in a cavern. And it, it's so funny and dead serious at the same time. And she's, she's really good that way. She puts the full craziness of female friendship and play on display, but in a way that makes you like, you're able to laugh, but it's not, she's not mocking it at all. She's just rendering it. And I think the other thing about Spark that is valuable to me is something that I've already referred to repeatedly, which is that she writes short books. And I, and I don't say that cynically as in like, oh, thank God they're so short. But the art of the short book is really, it's not practiced by that many writers. And I think, I sometimes think there's a bias toward long, monumental, you know, like big books. Like people, people talk about big books and they mean, you know, books that have a big impact, but they also sometimes seem to literally mean big books, like a book that's really thick and has lots of pages and which I also, you know, maybe this is just me, but always seems kind of masculine to me a little bit. Cause I think when people think of big books, they think of like war and peace by Tolstoy or infinite Jess. I don't know. I'm looking at Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pinchon, which is sitting on my shelf right now being like, you could take all the books from either side and we just keep standing there. Cause it's like three inches thick. And I think that there's such a artistic rigor required of an author who can write a very slender book that has impact. I think that that's harder than writing a big sprawling epic personally. Uh, maybe it's just because like, it's easier for me as a writer to write big and sprawling than to have the rigor to really like to create something that's really lean and effective at, I don't know, like 136 pages, you know? And so I think that's a really undervalued skill in literature, being able to write the slender book. And she was really good at it. Wish I could learn it from her. Thanks again to Susan Choi for joining us and recommending The Prime of Miss Jean Brody by Muriel Spark. Trust Exercise, published by Henry Halt & Co., will be available on April 9th, 2019, wherever books are sold. You can learn more about Choi at susanchoi.com. This episode of Recommended is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's new tailored book recommendation service, offering, you guessed it, tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. If you've been dreaming of a stitch fix for books, well, now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. 
TBR offers plans that allow you to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Peter Mendelssohn has worked as a dishwasher, a bookseller, a butler, a classical pianist, a chicken farmer, teacher, cover designer, house painter, commercial composer, branding consultant, and writer. He is the author of several books, including What We See When We Read and Cover. He is the former associate art director of Alfred A. Knopf and is currently heading up a redesign of The Atlantic magazine. Mendelssohn has been described by the New York Times as one of the top designers at work today, and his design work has been described by the Wall Street Journal as the most instantly recognizable and iconic in contemporary fiction. His debut novel, Same Same, is about what it means to exist and to create, and a future that may not be far off. My name is Peter Mendelssohn, and Magic Mountain is my recommended. Magic Mountain is uh, widely considered to be Thomas Mann's masterpiece. It is a massive volume um, that is about something which is reasonably trivial, which is a young man named um, Hans Kastorp takes a trip to visit a cousin of his who's a soldier who's recuperating from a bout of tuberculosis up at a sanatorium in Switzerland, in Davos, essentially. And he goes up intending to spend a couple weeks there and ends up staying for years, I think six, actually, and then comes back to the flatlands, as he calls them, at the end of the book, and is presumed dead in some sort of World War I action, like Paskindale or someplace like that. In the interim between those two bookends of him arriving at the sanatorium and him marching off to his death in the First World War, really very little happens. He meditates about time a lot. He worries about his temperature. He sits, uh, he reclines on a bench under a camel hair blanket. He meets some people who are variously interesting or uninteresting to him. He has a somewhat stuttering and thwarted love affair with a young woman named Klavdia Shosha. He meets a kind of Nietzschean Superman named Minor Peepercorn, and he's privy to very long debate between sort of humanist revolutionary philosopher named Settembrini and a kind of Jesuit nihilist named Naptha. And that is the long and short of it. It is very light on plot, despite the fact that it's a hugely long book. I think if you're at all interested in sort of Western canonical literature, the book Magic Mountain is a little like a mountain itself, a magic mountain in that landscape of sort of great Western white male lit. <laughs> it sort of looms. I mean, it's it's an enormous book. It's a huge project. It's an immensely interesting thought experiment. And it's just one of those books that's hard not to read, I guess, like Ulysses or Tristram Shandy or Moby Dick or any of those other sort of encyclopedic novels. Um, I was a teenager and it was sitting on my parents' shelf and it had a big fat yellow spine and it looked incredibly impressive. I had read Death in Venice and really enjoyed it and was very interested in the early 20th century, mid 20th century German, Austrian, milieu open literature. And it just, it seemed like an interesting thing to try. So I did it and I got very, very, very bored as I think actually one is supposed to, we can get to that later. By the time the book was done, I really didn't know what the fuss was about. 
But then the second time I read it, the late great editor Carol Brown Janeway, who is also was a great translator as well, had commissioned a new translation of the book in the earlier aughts. And when that came out, I thought I would give the book a shot again. I think that was published in a Knopf Everyman's Library edition. I picked it up and whether it was the new translation or me just being a little bit older and wiser, it really took that time. And I started to understand the themes that Mon was contending with. And then the third time I read it was right before I started work on my new novel, Same Same, which is deeply, deeply informed by that particular text. So, um, Though it's been a couple of years since I've read it, it obviously has been an important book for me. I guess this is a little counterintuitive, but I'll just say it, which is that the book is really barely a novel. You know, I think when most people talk about this book, they like to talk about some of the characters, the main character, Hans Kastorp in particular. Um, but I think what's missed is that Mon was actually not particularly interested in character, and to me anyway, was not particularly good at drawing characters. I guess what I'm saying is what interested me in Magic Mountain as a novel is that it really wasn't a novel. It was a vehicle for him to talk about really interesting questions about mortality and time and ontology and and ruminate a bit on Europe before the war, um, big political questions, big questions about the rise of medicine and science and how that affects epistemology in ways we see the world. And I just hadn't encountered a lot of books up until that point where the writer just didn't seem to really care about plot or character. And the question remains, what's left without those appurtenances? And what's left is ideas. So that seemed really interesting to me. To me, when I started writing my own novel, I didn't, you know, my concerns as a novelist were not character and plot. And I wanted to sort of investigate what a novel could be when it wasn't that. So this just seemed like a perfect armature to hang my novel on. And and so my book not only takes inspiration from Magic Mountain, but it references it quite explicitly throughout the book. I mean, my book is set at a arts colony in a desert, but it might as well be a sanatorium in the mountains. It's the same idea, isolation, a group of people sort of thrust together, um, trying to work out these kinds of deep problems and essentially failing to do so. There's a lot of scenes that I love in in Magic Mountain. I would say the first one that springs to mind, which is probably the most famous, I would guess, is the one where our hero, Hans Kastorp, sees an X-ray of this woman, Claudia Shosha, who he has uh, this massive crush on. He's he's waiting in line. I think it's, he's waiting to see his, his cousin's x-ray and the doctor is there and he's looking at this woman's x-ray and he's just completely all of his sort of assumptions about life and romance and all the sort of uh everything is sort of blown apart at that moment because he can see inside a person for the first time and not just a person but this woman that he is in love with it's actually a really startling moment i think kind of in the history of I don't know if you were to perform some sort of medical anthropology. I mean, much like they describe the first films, people sort of ducking out of the way of the train coming towards them in the theater. There must have been something sort of uniquely amazing, but also horrifying of being able to see into the human body for the first time that way. And we don't really think about those moments of huge technological leaps in medicine, how they sort of affect us 
as a culture, but it's a really incredible moment because essentially it's a love scene, but it's a love scene that's sort of tainted by this, I want to say, almost kind of like Faustian insight into the workings of the human body. And rather than it dispelling any mysteries as you think it would, it sort of increases the amount of mystery around this woman. Like you can see all of this plumbing and it begs the question, as it always does, where does the spirit reside? And um, so it's an amazing scene. It's both really, really creepy and super, super cool. And I, I think, I would imagine that that would be a scene that people would really enjoy in that book or at least find particularly interesting. With Magic Mountain, everything is sort of pretty much laid out there on the page for you. The problem is it's just not really compelling reading if you expect things to happen. So in a way, you just have to be prepared that this book, I would say a little like David Foster Wallace's Pale King, is a book about boredom to some degree and about the kind of lassitude that allows you to think those big thoughts, like I was saying earlier. So you just kind of have to strap in and allow the slow rhythm of the book you just have to kind of accept it on its own terms and recognize that not every reading experience is going to be about figuring out what happens on the next page. Some reading experiences are about carefully, slowly building an argument. And, you know, I mean, I'm making it sound like it's doing, like it's doing your taxes or something. And in some ways, I think it is. Um, but, you know, it's better to be prepared for that than unprepared for that. It's not like there's a great gloss on the book or some sort of annotated version that's going to make your life a lot easier. I mean, Thomas Munn wrote a short companion to it when he was done about the sort of writing of Magic Mountain, but it doesn't really help you understand any of the major themes. Like I said, it's not really that complicated. The great thing about Magic Mountain is that because it unfolds at this extremely glacial pace, and because it's a book that's trying to unpack the meaning of time and the experience of time, your own experience of time as you're reading the book stretches out and becomes observable in a way that I think is a very interesting experience that you don't get from many books, which I think, you know, the aim of most popular literature is to do the opposite, which is to speed up time, which is to make you sort of your blood rate go up for you to want to know who done it. Um, <laughs> and that's just not the case here. So, you know, my advice would just be to be prepared. Thanks again to Peter Mendelssohn for joining us and recommending The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. His novel, Same Same, published by Vintage, is now available wherever books are sold. And you can find out more about him at petermendelssohn.com. Thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear the feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended, and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com.